How many of you are familiar with what multiple personality disorder is? Uh, It's a psychological disorder that people have multiple personalities and and the personalities have real personalities and even their own voices and things. And our son Will is dating a a girl who's a nursing student and she was at the state hospital in Salem and there was a, a man admitted with this problem. They go through all the various health tests and things, and he demonstrated a shellfish allergy that was severe enough that he would likely die if he was exposed to shellfish. So they marked that on his chart and make sure that he doesn't get that to eat. And then some time later, he was accidentally given clam chowder to eat, and, and the nurses, when they found that out, had kind of had a panicked moment and and nothing happened. And they asked what that was, and he's like, well, that was Bob, and I'm Dave. The personality that ate the clam chowder didn't have a reaction to clam chowder, but a different one who got the test when he first came in did. I saw a documentary when I was a school teacher of a a woman who had 50 different personalities, and she was so violent she had to be handcuffed to a hospital bed because... One of them was a lion, and she would roar, and one was a baby, and she would cry just like a newborn. It was, it was terrifying, actually. Um, she had men voices and women voices, and she had been through some terrible experiences as a child, and it really messed her up. But you may be surprised to find out that the Bible has something to say about this. Actually, four different times, the Bible mentions multiple personality disorder. James 1 Verses 5 to 8, James says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The word that's translated in English there, double-minded, in the Greek is written there in Greek alphabet and then translated into our alphabet characters, is a compound word. It is di-psyche. James says, he uses the word divided psyche or divided soul, split personality. And he's writing that to Christians who pray to God. So he's not talking to the world's people. He's talking to people who are praying to God and asking them for something, and then immediately doubting. Dual personalities. The word psyche, suke, is where we get the English word psyche. It is generally translated mind, soul, or life, can be translated heart, and it, it does absolutely mean personality, even in modern Greek. So when I was telling those stories, Probably everybody's like, man, I'm glad I don't have multiple personality disorder. But you do. Because sometimes you desire God with all your heart, and then an hour later you're chasing after the world. Sometimes you come to church and you sing with real faith and love and desire to worship. And Sunday afternoon, you're watching bad movies. Sometimes you have faith and sometimes you doubt. Sometimes you rely on God and other times you think you rely on yourself. 
Sometimes you pray and most times you think you can fix it on your own. Sometimes you control your feelings and most times you don't. It's a divided psyche. I am in a season of intense and painful self-discovery. The last few months has been quite a learning curve for me. Just learning about myself. Trying to figure out who I am. One of my counselors told me, Mitch, it's a vast, unexplored landscape in there. And as we began to talk, I had a lot of questions. And he said, you need to settle down. We've got a whole lifetime to figure this out. It's a very common psychological explanation to say that our souls are icebergs, that what we see and experience in consciousness is only a tiny bit of why we do what we do and what motivates us and scares us and shapes us. And I've learned that I don't know myself very well at all. I actually, growing up, psychology was a dirty word in my family and in my church because it is. I mean, Sigmund Freud was a pervert and modern godless psychology is from hell. But psyche is a Bible word. And when it's, when it's godly, it's, it's a real deal. Like I said, I've been on this journey of discovering myself, and I have had some, some pretty open talks with a few people in the last few months, and I know for sure it was every man that I've talked to when I say, I, I've realized I really don't know who I am. And they're like, me too. I don't know who I am. I, I don't know who I'm supposed to be. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know why I do what I do. I don't know why I don't do what I'm supposed to do. You know, that whole thing Paul wrote about in Romans. Most of the men tell me, yes, I feel like a boy. I don't feel like a man. One of my counselors told me that, he said, Mitch, you got a lifetime to figure this out. This is just your journey with God. He said, there are, there's a vast, unexplored landscape in there. You have no idea all the hills and valleys and folds in the shape of your soul and personality and we're just gonna we're just gonna go through it together for the rest of your life. So this morning, I just want to take you on a very quick plane trip over your soul, so that you can look down in there and just see that maybe there's some things you hadn't noticed before. We'll see what Jesus wants to do at the end of it. First service was wonderful. Um, the Lord really did some great stuff. What I'm going to tell you this morning is probably going to make more questions than answers for sure. Um, but that's okay. So back to the multiple personality disorder. You know that we use the phrase about maybe someone else, they're two-faced. Call somebody two-faced. When we use that, we mean they're one person in public and another person in private. Yes? Okay. That's, that's multiple personalities. That's what James says. Don't be double-minded. Don't have a divided psyche. Um, we would say maybe of someone, she's so fake. Well, what do we mean by fake? We mean that the her that we get in public, we know is not the real her. There's two hers. Or we would say he's blind to his faults. 
What do we mean by that? We mean that he believes he is behaving and thinking and being one person, but the rest of us in the family or in his circle of friends, we know more about himself than he does. That's a die psyche. When you were little, your parents taught you how to behave in public. We'll put that in finger quotes. Because your parents taught you how to behave when you're at school and when you're with grandma and grandpa and when you're in the store and when you're at church, you behave this certain way. But your parents didn't just tell you how to behave, they showed you how to behave by how they acted. Because mom is ranting at you kids and then the neighbor knocks on the door and she turns into a different woman. All of a sudden she's sweet and smiley. Dad's angry about something and he's throwing a fit and throwing tools in the garage and cussing and gets to church on Sunday morning and like, well, who's this guy? I'm getting a lot more responses now from your faces. I don't mean that your parents just told you how to behave. They showed you how to be die psyche. And then as you got older, the kids in school taught you how to divide your psyche because kids are brutal in their disapproval and their mockery and their insults and their rejection. Brutal on the playground. You will not behave like that if you want to be around us. And so we learn to hide who we really are. We hold it in, put up a shield, do my best to figure out how I'm supposed to act so that people like me. And I start dressing a certain way, even though it's not necessarily what I liked when I was 10. Now that I'm 12 and 14, I have to think about it. And if you're 14 and you like classical music, you wouldn't dare show that. You wouldn't show the real you. I have to like what everybody else likes. I can't be me. And slowly over time, compounded again and again because of your parents and your siblings and your classmates and your teachers and all the dysfunctional people around you, you unconsciously split your mind. And I end up with this private inner self that I know is the real me and this public self that I show everybody else because it's a lot prettier or at least a lot more popular than the real me. You got rejected, you got scolded, you got laughed at, you got told lies, and so you held back and you hid your real self. You changed how you behaved and how you spoke and your interests, and you just pretended to be something that the real you is not. And Carl Jung says, our true self retires into the background and we become what we think others want us to be. And then as you got older into high school and college, you made choices and you did things that you are terribly ashamed of, that you can't admit to other people. Maybe you haven't even admitted it yet to God and yourself. That I, I did that and I wrecked that part of my life and it's back there but I'm not going to turn around and look at it because I don't want to admit that's the real me. 
And then other people did and said destructive things to you. And maybe you've faced and processed through some of that, but maybe not all of it. There's memories and emotions that are still in there. But you can't, can't let that show. And so again, you end up with this private inner self and this public outer self. And God says, that cannot be. We cannot have a die psyche. James uses the word again in chapter 4. Therefore, submit to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. There it is again. In English, it's double-minded, but in Greek, it means a lot more than that. It means a, a split personality. It means a split psyche. I think two different ways. I want two different things. I want God and I want the world. And I love this person, but I'm, I treat him terrible. I want to obey God, but, I, but I'm scared to. So this morning, again, I want, I want to take a little flight over, over your heart and um, point out some things. And again, I probably will raise more questions than answers, but it's okay. And I, I want to use Carl Jung's model. He was a psychologist from 100 years ago. And it's not scripture. This, this model that I'm about to present, is, it's not Bible, but you can find it in the Bible. It's there. I, I see it, and I'll point that out to you. But, but Carl Jung was a psychologist, and he studied the person. And he, I don't think he used the word soul, but I'm going to use the word soul. And uh, actually, most of what he taught, I'm getting passed on to me through Jordan Peterson, if you know that name. Carl Jung's model of our heart, or our, what the Bible calls our heart or our soul, and the Greek word in the Bible is psyche, and he said everybody's psyche is made up of three parts. You have a persona and a self and a shadow. So already there we have three pieces, a divided psyche. He said this, this is true of everyone. There, were, there are more pieces than this that he identified. I'm simplifying this a lot, giving you the first grade version of Carl Jung's model. But in his thinking, the persona is the person that you show in public. Some people might think of a persona as a mask, but it doesn't have to be because maybe you show them pieces of the real you, but the persona is the person that the self shows everybody else. The persona is your customer service voice. If you work with people, school kids, customers, clients, that Customer service voice that you put on, that interaction with people in public, that's a persona. It isn't the real you. Super nice. Jordan Peterson says the number one thing in the West, culture anyway, the number one thing we want to project is that I'm not dangerous to you. And so that's why we smile. That's why we shake hands. That's why we make eye contact. We want people to not be afraid of us. We want people to like us. And... That's why we do what we do. Your persona is your customer service voice. It's your I'm fine. It's your Instagram selfie smile that's not the real you, but it's what you post. It's when you're yelling at the kids on the way to church and you get in the parking lot and you get out of your car, boom, that's the persona. Is, is the you that comes up 
when you get out of your car at church, when you've been ranting at the kids on the way there, you put on a persona. Because you can't continue ranting at your kids while you come in the building. We, are, we get that. But the real you is the one in the car. The persona may be a mask, but it doesn't have to be totally fake. Sometimes the you that you present in public is, in large part, it is the real you. So instead of a mask, I think of it as more like makeup. Like the real you is there, but I've made it a lot prettier than it actually is. And the really ugly parts have a lot of concealer and, and foundation on them. That, that's how I view the persona. Some people's persona is totally fake. And if that's the case, then it is a mask. It is that the persona just totally overpowers who they really are. That's, that's a fake mask. It's performance. It's the fear of man is the Bible language for that. It's people-pleasing. But where the persona and the self are in large part integrated, and the persona is not a whole lot different than the real you, that's truth and vulnerability and openness and honesty. And then everybody has a shadow. It's the dark parts behind us that we think are bad. And a lot of them are bad, but some of them aren't. And I'll explain that in just a second. But back there in the shadow is that I keep things I keep out of the light. I don't want other people to see them. I don't want to look at them. I don't want God to see them necessarily. It's your secret porn addiction. It's anger. It's alcohol. It's self-righteousness. It's unforgiveness and bitterness that you're holding on to. It's fear. And in some people, their shadow completely overpowers their self, and we call those people psychopaths or sociopaths or deviants and criminals and manipulative people and sometimes the shadow overwhelms the self and that's depression and crippling anxiety and anger and some people are just totally unaware that they have a shadow either in fear or pride and the shadow contains all of your sin and your tendencies and temptations to wickedness but that's not all that's back there because back there in that shadow is a whole bunch of stuff that happened to me in the past that I don't want to turn around and look at. So it's not necessarily just your sin, it's other people's sin. It's been done to you and I don't want to deal with it. They don't have the capacity to turn around and look at that. So it's just there. It's the iceberg under the ocean that directs and shapes me, but I don't even know that it's doing that. I don't know why. And some of the things in the shadow are good, fine things, but because I mistakenly think they're bad, I just shove them back there. So examples are God made you to be a concert pianist, but because as a kid, piano wasn't cool, or I didn't want to put in the time to practice, or that's not what I wanted to be, I ignored that and it gets shoved back in the past and it goes into darkness in the shadow and... There's nothing wrong with it at all, but it's back there in the shadow because I don't want to deal with it. When you were a teenager, God told you he wanted you to be a missionary. Well, I don't want to be a missionary. I want to go to college and play sports. And so you ignored what God said. Now, 40 years later, that's still in your shadow because it's never been dealt with. Maybe it's God gave you a, a business idea. 
but because of fear, you've pushed that back in the shadow. I, I, I don't have what it takes to make that business successful. I'm not sure that it's going to financially provide for me, so I'm not going to take the risk. Or God gives you a creative idea and you think, well, if I did that, people would laugh at me. And so the, very, the real idea that is the real you, you just shove off behind back in the darkness and no one deal with it. It's not sin. It's just because I'm scared or because I don't want to be myself. I just don't show that part. And I was talking with Pastor Bob, you know, a bunch of you, most of you know my pastor, Bob Johnson from Montana. And we were talking a few months ago and I was telling him about a conflict that I didn't want to have and was trying to keep the peace and I, I said something about well I'm just being humble and he said Mitch that's not humility that's cowardice I was shoving the situation back in the shadow because of cowardice not because I was being humble I just didn't want to I didn't want the conflict good news is any shadow that's brought into the light disappears you will admit it, admit that it's there, your lust, your anger, your addiction, or your fears, or your good ideas and things that are the real you that need to come out into the light, the shadow disappears. Judas had a persona. He put up the front that he was a disciple of Jesus Christ. And his persona was so good, his acting job at being a disciple of Jesus was so perfect that on the night of the Last Supper, Jesus tells the disciples, one of you is about to betray me. The Bible says Judas was literally possessed by Satan. Listen to me, he's not demon-possessed, he is Satan-possessed, and the other disciples don't know which one is the bad one. That's how strong people's persona can be. Judas faked it so well, the real him never showed. Peter, on the other hand, did not have a persona. What you see is what you get with Peter. Peter's just, whatever he thinks, blah, there it is. Hey, Jesus, if that's you, I'm going to come out on the water and walk with you. Hey, Jesus, let's build a little hut for you and Moses and Elijah. Shut up, Peter. He's just there in the moment, and Peter is Peter, and there is no persona. He's, he's free. At least with Jesus, he is. Satan has a persona. It's an angel of light. The Bible says he comes projecting that he is an angel of light. He comes as a tempter and a liar instead of displaying his real self. Peter had a shadow. He didn't have a persona, but he did have a shadow. But he was not aware of it until the night he denied Jesus three times. And then he turned around and he saw his own cowardice, his own total failure for the first time. The good news is Jesus knew it was there all along, and he loved him. When Jesus meets Peter and the fish overflow the net and all that, Peter comes and falls on his knees in front of Jesus and says, depart from me, I am a sinful man. And Jesus loved him and received him. And when Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus loved him and received it and told him he'd heard from God. 
And when Peter says, well, Jesus, we've left our homes and our businesses, and what are we going to get in your kingdom? Jesus knows that's true. Peter had everything Peter did, he did in honest faith. But the whole time, Jesus knows Thursday night's coming. And he begins to warn Peter. And Peter, in all honesty, is like, no, Jesus, no way. I will die for you if I have to. I will never deny you. And Jesus receives that. Yes, Peter, I know that's your intention, but you have a shadow behind you that you haven't turned around and looked at. There's cowardice, there's unfaithfulness, there's failure in there. You're going to find it three times tonight. But don't worry. I've prayed for you. And when you come back, Jesus, before it even happens, restores him. When you come back, you're going to lead this whole group. And Peter that night finds his shadow. Oh, I did not know that was in me. I really meant it when I drew my sword. I really meant it when I told him I would go with him to the cross. I really meant it when I said I would die. But there's more in me than I was aware of. David has a shadow, but David is intimately aware of his shadow. It's in almost all of his songs. God, I cried all night and my pillow is sopping wet. I'm overwhelmed with my anxieties. Everybody's out to kill me, God. I'm miserable. Save me. I'm about to die. David is very in touch with his shadow. He knows the dark side. He feels it all. Well, what's he do with it? He sings it to God. In all of his songs, sing it out. Sing it out. Don't deny that it's there. Don't ignore it. Don't act like, no, that's not the real me. David turns around and looks it full on and writes it into his worship of God. Yes, God, I'm a mess. Then here it is. And you saved me from it all. And it's awesome. And you're great. Yes, yes, yes. So don't be scared of the fact that you, that I'm telling you you have a shadow. You do. Some of you are intimately aware of it. Others of you might be surprised to hear you have a dark side. But what I'm talking about this morning is radical honesty. I'm talking about radical acceptance of the fact that I have a persona and I have a shadow. And I see in Peter and David, I see that God's definition of righteousness is not perfection. Perfection is a persona. Perfection is a mask. It's a projection. God is not looking for perfection. He is looking for radical honesty and humility. Jesus, here's my persona and my shadow. What are we going to do about this? I, I give it to you. Make me my real self. Make me who you made me to be. And that is authenticity. It's the opposite of a persona. What I'm talking about this morning is a full frontal admission of who you are. In three ways that you can turn and look at your persona and your shadow and you can look at the memories and the feelings of the past and deal with them honestly. To admit they're there and be able to work through it with Jesus, with a counselor, with a parent, somebody. The memories and the feelings are real and I'm not going to ignore them or deny them anymore. This has got to get healed. I can't, I can't keep up the charade. I can't keep being fake. 
This has got to come out. I'm also talking about, number two, confession of sin. You've got to have a full frontal look at who you really are and the choices you've made, the things you've done to other people, the things you've said, the choices you've made. I ruined this. Not my ex, I did. Deal with memories and feelings and events. Deal with the confession of your sin. And number three, you got to face the fears of what is the good things you've shoved back in your shadow. The real you that God made you to be that you're hiding in the darkness has got to be able to come out. Jesus said in Matthew 18, Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. I don't know everything Jesus meant by this, but Jesus said you have to be changed into a little child. And the Greek word there is toddler. So we're talking about two, three, four years old. Jesus says if you want to get to heaven, if you want to be in my kingdom, you have to become a two, three, four-year-old. Well, I don't know exactly what all Jesus meant, but here's what I see with toddlers is that they do not have a die psyche. They have no persona at all, and their shadow is always present with their real self. I mean, you get the great parts and the monster parts at home and in the store and in school and in class and preschool or whatever. It's just, this is me. Here I am. I'm happy. And three seconds later, I'm screaming my head off. And another three seconds later, I'm happy again. Obviously, Jesus doesn't mean for us to act like brats in, in public. But I'm sure, amongst whatever else he meant there, I'm sure he means... No persona, integrated shadow. Like, I don't hide anything. I'm just me. This is good, bad, and ugly. This is me. Because that's what a three-year-old does. That's what a four-year-old does. And I'm sure Jesus means that, that we have to be one person, not a divided, hidden self in there somewhere. Because the distance between your conscious self and your persona causes resentment and frustration and bitterness. Either because you think you can't admit to other people who you really are because they would reject you, or your real self is full of all these unresolved emotions and memories and events and circumstances, but you throw up this I'm fine face, that's causing a lot of resentment and frustration and bitterness, stuffing your real self into the shadow, hiding behind a persona, denying that you have a shadow, is the cause of much of your negative emotions and stress. This is why James says, grieve, mourn, and wail over your double-mindedness. Because I'm sure that double-mindedness, even out to the extreme of multiple personality disorder, it's caused by unresolved feelings. And abuses and circumstances and traumas that just didn't get healed up and didn't get dealt with. And gets suppressed and repressed and pushed back. So what is the answer? The answer is Psalm 86.11. Unite my heart to fear your name. The word David used there in Hebrew is literally, Lord, give me one heart. I don't want a divided heart. I don't want to want God sometimes and other times I want to do what I want. I don't want to sometimes be my real self and other times I'm terrified to show people. I don't want to be 
myself when I'm alone in the shower and in the car, but when I'm in public, I got this fake smile on. Give me one heart to fear your name. Unite my heart. I have been praying this verse over myself and my family and all of you for weeks now. I've been, been looking forward to this Sunday. It's one of the main things the Lord is working in me, is that, that we don't know who we are because we're, we're broken, because we're divided, because so many people think that their persona is the real person and all these dark and hidden things that I have to keep secret, well, that's just me messing up. Well, no, that's the real you. And the persona is the fake. If you'll just be honest about that, bring it into the light and the shadow melts away. Grieve and mourn and wail over your own double-mindedness. The prayer is, Jesus, unite my heart. I don't want to be three different people or six. I don't want to treat my family different than I treat people in public. Why do we do that? With people in the store in public or people at work or at school, we smile and we're polite and we're patient. If we're not feeling patient, we're at least quiet. And then at home with our spouses and kids and parents, it's pretty brutal. Well, the answer is, and we know it, we don't have the energy to keep up a persona 24-7. So the answer is not that the nice, polite, patient, smiling person is not a persona. It should be the real you. That's the answer. Then it won't take all that effort to keep the fake smile on and the fake patience. Well, Mitch, I can't do that. You're right. But Jesus can. He is the light. We bring our shadow into the light. He changed your heart. Jesus is a specialist at this. Jesus is an absolute specialist at fixing double-mindedness, at fixing multiple personality syndrome. In Luke 4, Jesus actually said this is his mission. Luke 4, he is reading Isaiah 61. Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus said, God sent me to heal the brokenhearted. He's reading out of Isaiah. So Jesus is speaking Greek right here. And the word brokenhearted in Greek right there means to be smashed like a windshield. That's actually the Bible definition. You know they had windshields in Jesus' day, did you? It means to be broken, crushed to pieces. But Jesus is reading Isaiah, who's written in Hebrew. In Isaiah, it says, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And the word brokenhearted is shabar. And it means to be destroyed, to be smashed, to be violently crushed to uncountable pieces. Jesus says, it is my specialty, it is my assignment, it is my job to bind all those pieces up back into one so that you can have a united heart instead of a fragmented heart. In English, the word brokenhearted has an enormous emotional context that generally would mean sorrow. I'm emotionally sad is what brokenhearted means. And it 
can mean that in the scripture. Next Psalm shows that. Psalm 147.3, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their sorrows. But as I just pointed out, both in the New Testament and the Old Testament, the word brokenhearted, it would absolutely it would include our emotions and how we feel about the stuff that's been done to us and what we've done and, and our brokenness. But it has no emotional meaning at all. It just means to be broken into pieces. So when Jesus says, I'm coming to bind up the brokenhearted, it would include him putting his arm around us and wiping our tears away and comforting us from our feelings about what's happened to us or the, what we've done to our own lives. But that's not its primary meaning. It, Jesus means, I am coming to you to make you one again, to make you one person, one psyche. I am going to tie you up with bandages and put your heart back together so you're one, so you're not fragmented, so you're not all, have all these competing desires and temptations and feelings and so that you don't have a persona and a shadow that are different than your real self. Lord, unite our hearts to fear your name.